Today's reading is from John 14, verses 15 to 31. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me any more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away, and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. This is God's word. Friends, do keep that uh, passage open in John 14. Father God, thank you uh, for one another and the encouragement that we can be to each other. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Please make this time profitable to us uh, and to all whom we love and care for. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you've um, noticed something very characteristic of um, British culture, which is that British Christians sing wonderful words with gloomy faces. Have you noticed that? This is my story, this is my song. And you, you see British people, and perhaps particularly English people, this is my story, this is my song, praising my saviour. And you, you, everyone, you look around and think everyone's in a funeral. And you think these are marvellous words. And I want to try, with God's help, to open up for us um, a promise of the Lord Jesus uh, that says to us that being a Christian is more deeply wonderful than most of us realize most of the time, even if we might know it 
in theory. In the 1970s, I'm sure you will know that uh, in Cambodia, they had those dreadful years under the Khmer Rouge. And along with a great many other Cambodians, the large majority of Christians were killed in those years. And one elderly Christian woman who'd suffered terribly said this. She said, the Khmer Rouge may destroy our homes and our churches, but they cannot take his Holy Spirit from us who lives in the treasure houses of our hearts. Who lives in the treasure houses of our hearts. It's a lovely way of putting it, and it's the truth we're going to be looking at this morning. Let me tell you up front the two things I'm hoping we'll learn this morning, and that they're interwoven through the passage. And I'll tell you them both up front, and we'll see them both as we go through. And they sound different notes, so, so on, on the one hand, the Lord Jesus is going to set before us, for all who are real disciples of Jesus, the most wonderful promise that if you and if I are disciples of Jesus, real disciples of Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the triune God, the one true God, lives in your and my hearts. That's the promise the Lord Jesus makes, and we'll be spending quite a bit of time on that. And that's a wonderful thing, and a comforting thing, and an encouraging thing. Jesus is speaking to um, 11 men. If you've been with us the last three weeks, you'll know that we're going through John 13 and 14. And uh, at the beginning of John 13, Jesus is with the 12 apostles, and he washes them, as a symbol of what he's going to do for them on the cross, washing them of their sin, washing them clean. And halfway through, or two-thirds of the way through chapter 13, Judas Iscariot, who's going to betray him, leaves. And the cleansing is complete. And from then on, Jesus is there with just the 11 real disciples. And he's alone. And and it's almost as though the, 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 the time is suspended, really, through chapters 13, the rest of 13, 14, 15, 16, and then he prays in chapter 17, and then in chapter 18 he's arrested and begins the journey to the cross. So we're looking at the chapters 13 and 14, and at the end of chapter 14 there's a break. He says, um, "Come, let's let let let's go from here." And there's a break in the in the in the in the the conversation, and we're just taking it up to that um, break. But the eleven men who are there are very frightened. Just have a glance back, if you would, at chapter 13. Verse 33. This is one of the first things he says after Judas Iscariot leaves. And he says to the eleven real disciples, My children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me. And just as I told the Jews, that's the unbelieving Jewish leaders, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. And these 11 men are deeply distressed by that. They've, they've burnt their boats. They've, they've, they've left the world to follow, to walk with Jesus, to follow him. They've taken a huge risk in backing him and following him and walking with him. And some of the time it's been fine when he's been doing miracles, when he's been popular and so on. But the prospect of him leaving them and them not being able to follow fills their hearts with distress. And you see verse 1 of chapter 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. 
And so what Jesus is saying here is he's speaking to people who, for whom the prospect of trying to be a disciple of Jesus without Jesus physically present is very frightening. And although we're not apostles, nonetheless, if we're serious about our Christian faith, there'll be times when the prospect of trying to follow Jesus Somebody says to you, what are you? You say, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, but where's the man you're following? And the answer is, he's not here. And that's going to be hard. There's going to be times in the office, times at home, times at the school gate, times in the family, when it's going to be very, very hard to do that. We're going to think, if only he was here. And so Jesus is speaking to people whose hearts are troubled because of that. And we'll see this a tremendous promise that he makes. But the other thing that we're going to see interwoven with that, is what I could, I've called really a diagnostic test. So along with this wonderful promise, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit will live with you and in you, there's a diagnostic test. And here's the diagnostic test. I'll tell you up front, and then if you go to sleep, you'll have got it. Um, but, but you'll see it in the passage. The diagnostic test is this. Are you a real disciple of Jesus? And the test is, if I'm a real disciple of Jesus, then my life will be shaped by obedience to him, loving obedience to him. That's the test. And there's something really significant about that, because just as in in physical health, there's there's almost nothing sadder than to meet somebody who is desperately, seriously ill, but so drugged up that they're persuaded that they're healthy. You know, they, they, they feel that they're healthy, but the objective evidence is that they're really ill. It's terribly sad because they're not going to do anything about it, about, about putting it right. And, and, and there's a sense in which being in church, especially if it's a warm, lively church, can, can turn Christianity, if we're not careful, into a sort of spiritual narcotic. That I feel good. I feel that I'm a Christian. I feel good about myself. I feel happy. And it may be a mask that actually my life is not marked by loving obedience to Jesus. So there are the two things we've got, the promise and the diagnostic test. And we'll see them interwoven as we as we go through. So chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, and in this next passage the focus is on love. There's a tremendous emphasis on loving Jesus and his love and the Father's love for us. Love is a big theme here. If you love me, and love is, 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 is means loyalty more than feelings. If you are loyal to me, it's a, it's a covenant word. It's to do with loyalty. If you are loyal to me, says Jesus, you will obey what I command. And he's not talking about sinless perfection, but he's saying your life will have changed direction if you really love me. It's not just that you might sing a lively song and feel warm about Jesus. If you really love me, you will do what I command. Your life, the direction of your life will have changed. And there will be all manner of decisions about your lifestyle that will change. If you love me, you'll do what I command. And then he says, verse 16, he begins to come on to the promise. And I will ask the Father, and he's not saying, this is a reward for loving me. He's not saying, if you're good and love me, then I'm going to ask the Father to to pay you back with something good. It's not a reward. He's saying, if you're a real disciple, and that's evidenced by loving obedience, I will ask the Father, 
And he will give you another counselor or advocate to be with you forever. That is to say, he will give you one who will be to you what I have been. An advocate, a counselor, a comforter. He'll be to you what I have been. And he'll be with you forever. I'm not going to be with you forever. I'm about to leave you. And where I'm going, you can't come. But he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. And this is the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, who is called here by the Lord Jesus the Spirit of Truth. And the Spirit of Truth has the sense not just of truth as opposed to falsehood, but reality as opposed to shadow. Somebody once said that they went to a Christian meeting and they came out and they said, "It, it, it seems to be true, but it doesn't seem real. And what they meant was, it seems, I can see the logic of it. I can see that there's a certain logic of it to to it. But it doesn't feel real in my experience. And the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, is the one who brings the presence of God into our experience. He is the spirit of truth, of reality, of genuineness, of authenticity. And Jesus says that's what's going to happen if you're a disciple of Jesus. But only if you're a disciple of Jesus, verse 17, the world can't accept him. That the world, that is, human beings organized, living in God's world without reference to God, can't accept him. Because the world doesn't see him or know him. This is a, this is a heart-changing, unseen, hidden, internal, interior change. But you know him, for he lives with you, he'll be in you. And Jesus is looking forward to the day of Pentecost when the Spirit will be poured out on his disciples. And since that day, whenever any man or woman has come to faith in Christ, to real faith in Christ, and begun to follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit has come into their heart. In fact, if the Holy Spirit didn't come into their heart, they couldn't even begin to follow Jesus. So Jesus says, you're not going to be on your own, because my Father will send God the Holy Spirit, and he will be in you. He will be with you. He will live with you forever. He will dwell in your heart and your life forever, and you will not be alone. But then Jesus goes on, and on the face of it, this next bit's really puzzling. If you look at verse um, 18, he says, I won't leave you as orphans. I, Jesus, won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So what's going on there? Jesus has just said, I'm leaving you. I'm not going to be with you. I'm going away, and where I'm going, you can't come. And I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give you God, the Holy Spirit, who's going to be with you. And then he says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to come to you. Now, the first thing that meant was after the resurrection. And again and again in the the resurrection accounts, you see Jesus came to them. I'll come to you. I'm going away, but then I'll come to you. But it can't just be that. Because after the resurrection, Jesus stayed with them. He, 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 he appeared. The appearances went on for a few weeks. And then, and then he ascended to his Father in heaven. And, and the resurrection appearances ceased. So if Jesus simply means, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, I'm going to come to you in the resurrection, it's of limited comfort to them. It means you're going to see me from time to time for a few weeks, after which you won't see me at all. To which the obvious response is, yes, you are leaving us as orphans. We've still got to be disciples of Jesus without you. And and therefore it seems that what Jesus is saying is this, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, I'm going to come to you as the Holy Spirit comes to you. And here is a deep truth, that when God the Holy Spirit 
comes and dwells in the heart of a believer, as he does of every believer, he brings with him, as it were, he, the third person of the Trinity, brings with him the second person of the Trinity. He brings with it with him the Lord Jesus. Not physically. The Lord Jesus is a, is a human being. He's still a human being. He will always be a human being in his resurrection body, a transformed physicality, but he's a human being. And he lives with the Father at the Father's right hand, and one day we shall see him. He doesn't dwell physically inside us. But the unity between God the Holy Spirit and God the Son is so close. We find it so hard to conceive of anything as close as that, a union of persons like this. The union between God the Father and God the Son is such that if you have God the Holy Spirit, sorry, God the Son and God the Spirit, is if you have God the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart, you have the presence of God the Son. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long, the world won't see me anymore, verse 19, but you'll see me, not just after the resurrection, but by the Spirit after Pentecost. And because I live, you also will live. Now, verse 20, Jesus says something very deeply wonderful. Verse 20, he says, On that day, that is, I take it, when the Holy Spirit comes into their hearts, you will realize that I, Jesus, am in the Father, that is, united with the Father, in union with the Father, and you are in me and I am in you. Now, just glance back for a moment to verse um, uh, 10, just up the column to verse 10. Jesus says, don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? So Jesus says, you need to understand that at the heart of the universe, there is a relationship within God. There is an intimate relationship of love between Father and Son in God. The Father's in me and I'm in the Father. You need to understand that. And now in verse 20, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, you're going to realize not just that there's a relationship within God between the Father and the Son, you're going to realize that I'm in you and you're in me. In other words, that the if you think of, of God as a circle of love, of relationship, of perfect love, it's as though that circle of love has been opened up and you have been drawn into it. It's a wonderful thing that when a man or woman becomes a Christian, the day they become a Christian, they are drawn into the circle of the love of the Father and the Son by the Spirit. You'll realize that. You'll understand that you're very much not alone, that with God the Holy Spirit living in your heart, you have the presence of Jesus, you're united to Jesus, you are with Jesus, and he is with you. In verse 21, he, he, he gives another of these cautions. He says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. So it's as though Jesus is, is, is saying, here is a wonderful truth, a truth to make you smile as you sing. Here is a wonderful truth, but, hang on a minute, I'm talking about the person who obeys my commands. So do a reality check. Is the direction of your life shaped by obedience to Jesus? Not sinless perfection, but is the direction of your life changed? Or are you just enjoying the coziness of church? So there's a reality check there. Jesus says, I'm, I'm making wonderful promises, but they are to those whose lives have been turned round by love for me. And then he says, verse, verse 20, he who loves me will be loved by my Father, 
and I too will love him and show myself to him. And he's still talking about this ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So Judas, another of the disciples, not Judas Iscariot, asks a question. He says, Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us, not to the world? Why, why not do a public appearance? Why not wow the world with your greatness? And one day he will. One day he will return in body. Why this secret coming into the heart? Why this hidden coming into the heart? Why is it that when I go to the office tomorrow morning, it isn't obvious to everybody that I've got God living in my heart? Why is it they don't all bow down and think, whoa, there's somebody with God in their heart? Why is it that they treat me as just a, a nobody? Why is it that they despise me if I start talking about my faith in Jesus? Why this secret, secret, hidden heart coming? Why not the, why not the public open wowing of the world? And Jesus replies in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. That's who I'm talking about. And my father will love him. And we, that is, Father and Son, will come to him and make our home with him. So Jesus is adding something here. He says, I'm going to ask the Father to give you God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to live in your heart, to change your heart. And as he comes in to live in your heart as a believer, I'm going to come. Because the third person of the Trinity brings with him the second person of the Trinity, the presence of Jesus. And when the third person and the second person of the Trinity come into the heart of a human being, they, they bring with them the first person of the Trinity. And, and, and Jesus, in this extraordinary language, he says, the God the Father, who, who, as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy, dwells in unapproachable light, who is the origin and source of creator, creator of all things, his presence will come and dwell in your heart. So Jesus is saying to be a Christian is a very wonderful thing. It is more deeply loved than you and I can ever imagine. It is, as that lovely Cambodian woman said, that old suffering believer said, it is to carry the presence of God around in the treasure house of your heart if you're a real Christian. So there's the challenge, isn't there? I need to have my life turned around so that I'm really shaped by obedience to Jesus. But there's the wonderful thought that there is in my heart a lasting and never-to-be-taken-away presence of God the Holy Spirit who brings with him God the Son and God the Father who dwells with me forever. This is the fulfillment of the great Bible promise where God says, I'm going to be with my people. It's fulfilled ultimately in at the end of time, in the end of the book of Revelation. I'll be with them. I'm going to wipe every tear away from their eyes. I'm with them. But it's already true spiritually for the Christian believer today. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth. But then again, the warning, verse 24, he who doesn't love me won't obey my teaching. So there may be people who think they're Christians, but they're not. And that's the test. And these words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. And then in verses 25 and 26, he tells them, these 11 men, something. He says, I've spoken all this stuff to you while I was with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Advocate, whom the Father will send in my name, he's going to teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. He's going to teach you and remind you. Now, in the first instance, that promise must be given to the, the apostles. The Holy Spirit cannot remind me or you of what Jesus has said to us in his ministry on earth, because you and I weren't there. But he can remind the apostles. He's going to remind them and teach them. So that wonderfully, 
I don't know if you've ever wondered how it was that the apostles, when they taught and when the New Testament was written, as their teachings written up, how it was that we can be confident that they got Jesus right. I mean, anybody who's tried to be a journalist or do a report of any kind of thing knows that, that, that you and I can't do that by nature. We, we, we naturally, we, we tweak things, don't we? We shape them so that we report people as saying what we wish they'd said. Have you ever done that? Given a report back and it said something, you just report what, what you wish somebody had said, what you wanted them to have said. You use somebody like a sort of ventriloquist doll. And of course, plenty of um, scholars have done that. They, they, they said of the 19th century liberal um, biblical scholars who were cutting up the Bible that somebody famously said that they were, it was as though they were looking down a deep well to, to try and find Jesus. And all they saw at the bottom was the reflection of their own faces. <laughs> and you can do that with Jesus. But the reason the apostles didn't was that the Holy Spirit taught them and reminded them. So that after Jesus had gone, the Holy Spirit taught them, reminded them what Jesus had said, taught them so they understood it, so that when Peter and, 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 and so on, when the apostles taught, and then when their teaching was written up, we can be confident they got it right, wonderfully. Now the Holy Spirit does teach us, but he doesn't teach us fresh things. He opens our eyes so that we can understand what the apostles taught and walk with him. And then in verse 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Friends, how we long for that. I remember once when I was visiting a a retired couple in the the church where I was a minister, and we'd had a fairly fruitless visit. We did just small talk, really. And then at the end I said, "Um, I'd love to pray for you. Um, What would you like me to pray? And suddenly they said, oh, could you pray that we'll have peace? at which point the visit continued for some time afterwards because it suddenly became profitable. Would you pray that we'd have peace? Now, they meant, I think, an inner sense of peace. But what they needed to understand was that you and I can't, our inner sense of peace comes and goes. What we need is an objective status of peace. We need to be at peace with God. And Jesus says, I'm giving you that. I'm giving you a rock-solid thing that you are at peace with God. And that's something the world can't give. The world can give a temporary truce in a relationship, in an office, at the school gate. The world can give a temporary sense of feeling better through medicines or counsel, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Sometimes we're grateful for that. But the world cannot give us a status of being at peace with God. And Jesus says that is what he's going to leave. And so he says, don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. And then there's the, the, the last little bit. Jesus says, you heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back. If you loved me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. You'd be glad that I'm going to the Father. But I've told you that this is going to happen, so when it happens, you'll believe. You won't be taken by surprise. It's going to happen soon, verse 30. I'm not going to speak much longer. The prince of this world, Satan, the devil, is coming. But look what Jesus says. He has no hold on me. As we would say, he hasn't got anything on me. There's no guilt. That's how Satan gets a grip on people, through guilt. He has no hold on me. He has no grip on me. But the world needs to learn that I love the Father And I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Now notice this before we finish. Jesus says, I love the Father, 
And therefore I do exactly what the Father has commanded me. And then he says, if you love me, you will do what I command you. And the Father commanded Jesus to go to the cross. And in perfect obedience, the Lord Jesus did that. I love the Father. And the world needs to learn that I do exactly what the Father told me. I go all the way to the cross. The world needs to understand that. And then Jesus says, if you love me, if you're loyal to me, you too will, will do what I command. And there's just a hint there that the call to Christian discipleship is not a light thing. That to do what Jesus commands is to walk in his footsteps on the way of the cross. It is to walk in a life of self-denial. A life in which myself is put out of the center. A life in which I live for others and give to others and serve others for Jesus' sake. And if you and I do that, if by grace our lives are turned round, that if we do that reality check and we look at our lives and we look at our hearts and we say, is it true that my life has been turned round and that I'm living a life of repentance, that day by day I'm struggling with sin and selfishness, that it matters to me to follow Jesus, that I want to obey him and love him, If that is true, and if there is that gritty seriousness about your Christian discipleship and mine, an earnestness, a genuineness, an authenticity about it, if that is true, then these promises are ours, and you and I carry around in our hearts the personal presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and we will do so forever. And that makes the prospect of being a disciple of Jesus without Jesus physically present a very different thing. That's why those that Cambodian woman could shine with faith when she'd lost everything, family, home, everything, health. At that time, it's because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in the treasure house of her heart that she could do that. And in a sense, it is when times are tough that the test comes, the diagnostic test, the test of who are real believers. And the sad thing is that when times do get tough, a number of people who've looked like Christians in Christian churches, who've enjoyed the coziness and the warmth of it, may prove not to be. But that need not be true for any of us. And if we search our hearts and pray that we might be those who genuinely love Jesus, are loyal to him, and whose lives are marked by obedience. May God make that true of us. Let's be quiet for a moment and I'll I'll pray. Father, we thank you for that wonderful promise of Jesus that by the Spirit you and the Lord Jesus come to the heart of each true believer. And we ask that we might prove to be true believers marked by obedience. And in the trials and pressures and sadnesses and difficulties of life, we ask that we might be those who can quietly rejoice 
in knowing your presence with us forever. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.